I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. The injury bug bites the Gators again. Will has a toss-up article, another one here on the way. This time he zeroes in on the Florida State Seminoles. And we will save the back half of the show this week for our thoughts on Swamp Kings from Netflix that just dropped uh, Will and I. I've been watching that the last couple nights here, and uh, so we we got plenty of thoughts. So we we both finished the series, and we'll let you know what we think. But will we got plenty to get to? So let's dive right in here. Uh, more tough news out of camp for the Gators. I know we opened the show last week talking about Justice Boone. Uh, this week we're talking about running back Cam Carroll, the six foot, two hundred and thirty one pound wrecking ball of a running back out of Tulane. Uh, was expected to contribute behind Johnson and ETN in the backfield this season. Look, uh, we talked about in the preseason magazine, Will, the Gators have 103 carries to give away with the departure of Anthony Richardson. This was a guy that we definitely expected to have some level of contribution this season. And to even with ETN and Johnson, he was going to find a role on the field. So we obviously wish Carroll a speedy recovery. And while on the surface, you can look at the team and be like, well, your third string running back, you can handle it. But really what this does, Will, is it takes a room that I think most of us felt great about in terms of giving it a grade. I, I think we I had it rated an A or even A plus in the magazine because you're pretty much four deep with Carroll here. And now you're reliant all of a sudden on Trayon Webb to step up. And it's not that I'm not confident in Trayon Webb's ability. I think the guy's going to be a great player but you're putting a true freshman in a spot that's requiring him to contribute his freshman year and really not much of a backup plan. Just it, ex- it exposes the depth, Will, and we saw the same thing along the defensive front. Some of these freshmen, talented freshmen, will get the opportunity to contribute on the defensive front as well with the injury to Boone. But, man, we don't have much room for error after after these depth pieces are, go- are, are, are stepping in here, Will. Well, I mean, welcome to the 2023 Gators. I think that's really sort of what this points out and really why we've been harping on recruiting for as long as we have. You know, I think one of the places you're really going to see this is perhaps special teams because Trevor Etienne was an awesome kick returner last year. They've had him doing kick returns during fall camp. I'm not sure you can use him to get that edge and risk him getting injured when you've only got Montrell Johnson and ETN in the backfield, right? Because if ETN gets injured, now all of a sudden you're absolutely reliant on Trayon Webb. Like you're not just like, oh, well, we'll get him in there, get his feet wet for five or six carries, and we won't put him in in critical situations when we need pass protection. Like at that point, you're going to have to rely on him extensively. And so I think one of the first places that this really hurts the Gators is just on special teams because ETN made a huge difference in terms of flipping special, in terms of flipping field position last year. And I think you can envision that happening again. Um, you mentioned the 103 carries that that Anthony Richardson had last year that Cam Carroll was going to come in and replace. Look, when Naquan Wright went down last year, or not when, not when he went down, when they decided to demote him to third string, um, Johnson and ETN got the bulk of the carries. I think they'll be able to do that again. Again, you're just now skirting right on that razor's edge of Webb being a major contributor. The other thing you might see is you might see somebody like Eugene Wilson being put into the backfield a little bit more as well, not necessarily as a runner, though maybe as a runner, but just as someone who's going to be executing the offense from in the backfield when they when there's a passing situation or a time when they want to get the ball to somebody out into space. You know, they might end up bringing some other guys into the backfield, and then you got to have some tight ends step up, right? So, Arthur Sportingham, Hayden Hanson, Tony Livingston, you know, 
most of the time last year they were three wide one one running back i know they've been running a lot of two running back sets in in spring and fall camp well now that you're down to two proven running backs with a true freshman back there in web are you going to start going back to more of those multiple tight end sets and essentially having an h back back there rather than two running backs those will all be sort of the questions that we're going to that we're going to see but look there there's no doubt that um when you looked at the offense tight end we're sort of like eh, i don't know what we're getting Wide receiver, you're like Pearsall, and then uh, I don't know what we're getting. And running back, you were like, I know what we're getting, and Carroll is like major insurance for the guys who who are already there, who we know we're getting. Well, the insurance policy just went down, so there's no insurance. You're you're skirting that edge, and you know, look, I mean, obviously, like you said, we we wish Carroll well, and this is just part of it, right? Running backs have ACL injuries. That's football players have ACL injuries. That's just something that sort of happens. And, uh, you know, non-contact injuries happen. It stinks. But, you know, if this had happened in week one, I think we all would have been like, okay, at least it happened during a game. That's the thing that makes it worse, right, is that it happens during practice before you actually see the guy play a game. So you don't really know what you're missing. You don't really know how the chess pieces fit together. And so it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. But, again, I, I sort of go back to special teams as the place where I immediately go – this probably has an impact just because I don't think that you can, uh, I don't think you can risk it. I, I don't mean to be the guy that's constantly being a bummer on the transfer portal. Every show, it feels like now, will. <laughs> but another example of someone out of the portal that transfers in that, you know, we, we see Goodwin transferred home, obviously has a situation in the family. Uh, it's not going to be playing for the Gators this year. Carol, did come off of injuries. He he did have some injuries at Tulane. He was very good when he played, but he had some injuries throughout his career at Tulane. And that's maybe one of the reasons why a guy like that jumps from Tulane, who, by the way, is projected to be a very solid team again this year, makes that jump to the SEC to maybe get some greater exposure, you would think, to do that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really bummed out for Cam Carroll is not getting the opportunity. But once again, when we go into the offseason, we talk about portal, portal, portal. I, I, I just don't think that's the answer for anything other than a plug and play here and there. Will and it well, I mean, so I, I think I think that's the that's the thing is that you're going to have guys who are hit and miss, and in this case, Carroll is injured, but that's not that's not abnormal for football, right? People get injured, uh, but Florida needed depth at the running back position. There's no doubt, and so if they had just had Johnson, Etienne, and Webb, and somebody had gone down, well, now you're really thin. So Carroll was a depth piece overall. He was a luxury for them for Florida to bring in, right? right. And the other thing is, is Carroll's not dead. He's going to be back next year, right? So from the standpoint of sort of Montreal Johnson is probably a guy that you think of at least coming into this year might declare for the NFL draft when he's done, if he Good can chance. do everything that we think he's, if he does everything we think he's going to do. And ETN is a guy who's going to be coming into that season next year where he's sort of in that same spot. Carroll is going to be a solid backup player. And then you've got Webb coming in, who's going to be coming into a sophomore season. So if you look at it again as as a building opportunity, Webb is going to get some carries this year he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. That's probably good for 2024 and 2025, which mm -hmm. let's be honest, that's really what you're building for if you're Billy Napier. Like you want to win games this year, you want to be successful, you want to st start laying that foundation for six and seven is not acceptable and we have to get better. Absolutely no doubt. But you also need to get a lot of these young guys playing time and and that's gonna, you know, Trayon Webb is gonna be forced in there early just because of uh the Carroll injury, which is the way it is. Well, speaking of the transfer portal, Will, Florida State, the Florida State roster. Let's talk about the the toss-up series you're doing and uh talk about those FSU Seminoles. Uh what you see in this toss-up matchup with Florida this year. 
And so it's interesting. I mean, clearly they have an advantage at quarterback, right, with Jordan Travis. But it's the last game of the year that Florida's going to be playing them. And when you looked at Florida State, there were two things that really jumped out at me. Out to me, they feasted on teams with losing records. They were six and zero against teams with losing records, but they also played six one-score games, and they were four and two in those one-score games. That. 10's not the last. You tend to go three and three if you've got six. But what we've actually seen over the last few years with both Jim McElwain and Dan Mullen is that the number of ones, at least this is what I'm starting to draw from those from those eras, is that the number of one score games that you play is actually a bigger indicator of your of your talent level than than your record in them, right? So Jim McElwain went six and one in his first two years in one score games. Um, Dan Mullen, or I'm sorry, Jim McElwain went seven and one. Dan Mullen went six and one. And that bolstered their first two seasons and they were able to, they were able to sort of paper over some of the deficiencies in their roster. And then in either the third or the fourth year for each of them, it fell apart. And all of a sudden we're staring at four and seven seasons and six and seven seasons and that sort of stuff. Um, and so what what it suggests to me, the fact and and if you look back at Alabama and Georgia and the way they built their first year, Kirby and and Nick both played a lot of one score games. And then in the second year, uh-uh, it was like one one score game for both of those guys in their second season. So that's one thing to look for from the Florida side, because they played quite a few one score games last year, but also Florida State has been sitting right on the edge. They haven't recruited well at all. They're like ranked 21st overall over the last four seasons. And so what they've had to do is they've had to paper over those holes through the transfer portal. So they've got Jeremiah Byers coming in at right tackle. He got major playing time at UTEP last year. They got Casey Roddick at left guard, major playing time at Colorado over the past few seasons. But they were 84th in tackles for loss allowed last year. Florida had seven tackles for loss versus FSU. They only had 70 all year. They also had two sacks and they only had 23 all year. So they were in the back. And, and I mean, my enduring memory of the Florida state game is nine defenders converging on Jordan Travis and him escaping. And so Florida, (laughs) so Florida state season is really going to come down to can Jordan Travis stay healthy. And one really interesting thing that I found is when you look in the one score games, he he ran the ball way more than in the games that they played against those teams with the losing records. And you'd sort of expect that, right? You got to actually like pull out the st- all the stops when you play teams that are better and that sort of stuff. But he was a lot less effective through the air. He only completed 59% of his passes, and then he completed 70% in the blowouts. He ran for 6.2 yards per rush in the one-score games and, and 3.2 yards per rush in the blowouts. And so um, it, what, what that really suggests to me is and and if you go back and look at FPI or just the 24/7 composite rankings for talent the teams that they played the one score games in were teams that were that were of equivalent talent to them so they're a team that is going to have a decent season because they're going to play a bunch of teams in the ACC that have less talent than they do but the question i have is with a rebuilt offensive line with transfers who are coming in you already mentioned when it came to carroll and we've seen it with with some other guys that you did a great job in the magazine of pointing out sort of you know you end up like maybe one out of three guys turn into like a real solid starter and florida i think you know we all look at mazuka and go oh he's going to be great because osiris torrance was great last year but that doesn't always happen and we saw that on the defensive line with dan mullen right adam schuler comes in and plays really really well as an effective cog for dan mullen to start things and then they bring in truesdell and daquan newkirk and antonio valentino and it's sort of eh, there's just no not really much contribution overall so uh, that to me is why this is a, is a toss up. I think if Jordan Travis makes it to that game, then Florida's going to have a really rough time. But I'm not sure Jordan Travis is going to make it to that game healthy. I think they're going when they play Clemson and when they play LSU and when they play some of the better teams on their schedule, 
Travis is going to run because he's going to have to run in order to be effective, in order to help Florida State move the ball. I think they, one, I think they're going to lose those games. But two, I think that there's a possibility that that 12 games in, he's going to be incredibly beat up behind an offensive line that doesn't help his running game very much. And then having to run against better teams or teams that have similar talent. Florida has very similar talent to Florida State. The one advantage Florida State has is the quarterback position. So if I'm picking that one as a toss-up, if I'm saying what gives me hope coming into the season, it's that you're going to get a banged up Jordan Travis. You get an offensive line that can't block a Florida defense. It's really starting to get its legs and you're getting a Florida state team that quite honestly, barely held on at home last year against a very flawed Florida team. And now hopefully you've got a Florida team that's taken major steps forward. And, uh, you know, we'll see, maybe, maybe we'll be, maybe we'll have a second, a different quarterback for Florida at that point as well. But, uh, but that to me is, is the thing is I think clearly everybody looks at Florida state. They're already ranked as like a top 10 team coming into the season. Oh, the Knowles are going to be great. They don't have a profile of a team that was like top 20 or top 10. Like they have a, they have a profile well, you, of a team that's see, probably like top 25. The, on on paper, though, you look at what they did, the the progress they made on offense last year was quite impressive. They bring in Coleman out of Michigan State. They bring in Jaheim Bell, who's talented. Hasn't I, I don't know if his stat sheet matches his talent level, but the tight end out of South Carolina. And, and Benson comes back, and we saw what Benson could do. We saw what that running back can do. So they, they certainly seem like they have the pieces to have a pretty explosive offense here. And, uh, you know, it seems like they're lining up to have the best season they've had with Norvell on paper. So I, I, I think, hype. so I think one of the things that, that we always overlook is that success is not linear. We'll talk about this with Swamp Kings a little bit, I'm sure, but it's not like urban Meyer came in and went five and seven his first year and 10 and three in his second year, and then won a national championship in his third. That's not how it works, right? Like the, the, the progress is not linear. The fact that Jordan Travis had an awesome season, like they got Tate Rotomaker behind him. And if if all of a sudden you got Rotomaker in there having to play major snaps, um, you know, I think the whole complexion of that team is different. Like that team does not go 10 and three without Jordan Travis at quarterback. If they have Jordan Travis from two years ago at quarterback, they're probably six and six, right? And that game, and it's not that long ago that we watched probably the worst Florida, Florida State game I've ever seen in the game where their kicker whiffed on the onside kick at the end of the game. Like we, we had some bad ones during the McAway. Well, that's there. true. But, they but again, I, I go, but I, but but you know what I mean? Like you go back, you don't have to go back that many games to where Florida State was a laughing stock. And so Travis took a major step forward last year. There's no doubt if a healthy Travis is playing in that game, I think that Florida State is going to be favored. I'm just not sure he's going to be able to stay healthy. I, I think that there a lot of their success was a mirage going four and two in the one score games and having six games against teams that just weren't very good from a talent perspective and from an FPI perspective. And so if you start a season six and oh, like that kind of just based on your schedule, well, that kind of makes the season look more successful than it is. I think they're on a razor's edge in terms of being able to win. Does that mean I think they'll have more wins than Florida at the end of the year? Yeah, I think they will. I think they're a top 25 team. I don't think they're a top five team. And I think that's sort of the distinction, right? Is if, if you look like the Wisconsin's of the world and you the Michigan States of the world and the Maryland's of the world and, and even like the Mississippi States and the Mississippi's like those teams sort of sit, go in and out of the top 25 and on any Saturday they can be beat. 
that's what I think Florida State is. I think I think that they are a team that's going to kind of go in and out of the top twenty-five after they get blasted by LSU in the first week, and you know that that it's going to be uh, you know it's going to be one of those things where um, you know we sort of look at it at the end and go huh, they were a borderline top twenty-five team, eight and eight and four, nine and three, somewhere in that range. I would be very surprised if they went eleven and one, twelve and zero. So you got FSU getting blasted by LSU the first week. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll see. I, I despise that the, that that game is in Orlando, man. I really do. That that game should that should have been a home and home. LSU Florida State should have been a home. Dude, and home. Harold Perkins is gonna go nuts. <laughs> he is gonna go nuts, and I'm gonna like cry while he's doing it. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I. I am I am seriously that one still burns Jordan. you, huh? I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I am worried for Jordan Travis's health with Harold Perkins. He might be the best defensive player in the country, and I think he's going to show it when uh, when when they play Florida State. Uh, I think you're being a little tough on the Knowles here. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, that may be is, true, man. but that's what I'm here for. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it is. We'll see how it is. If you have not watched Swamp Kings yet and you want to see it fresh, there are going to be spoilers ahead. Spoiler alert ahead. We will be talking about uh, the different the details of different episodes. So if you want to watch this after you watch the documentary, feel free to tune in then. But spoiler alerts ahead. All right, let's talk about the Swamp King. Speaking of tough on the Knolls, we'll talk about Swamp Kings. It wasn't uh, tough on the Knolls. They never mentioned them. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> mention a few things. They didn't mention a few things. We'll get to that at the same time. But overall thoughts. Let's let's really start with what stood out to you. What'd you like? Right. So just a quick summary for those of you who haven't seen it. It's a four-part documentary. It really kept the focus on the key moments of the 2005-2009 Gators in terms of just the, diving into the games. It kind of reminded me of uh, now that's what I call Gators 2006 old CD. Well, just kind of the greatest hits, right? You played the greatest hits, but it was fun. It was a really fun watch. You enjoyed They did a great job recreating significant on the field moments and, and for those of you that listen to our show weekly that was one of the big concerns I had going into is whether or not they would keep the focus on the field and I think they did a great job of that uh the behind the scenes tapes the midnight workouts the the mat drills practice like Meyer and practice especially the locker room footage really added a great backdrop to the story the b-roll shots at campus were great in downtown Gainesville I, I loved all that uh Brandon Seiler, though, this guy, outstanding storyteller. I remember him as a hell of a linebacker, and now I'm going to remember him as a hell of a storyteller. And uh, if UF stocks some Seiler jerseys this year in the the gift shop, I I think there'll be some 40s floating around the swamp uh, (laughs) this fall here. Um, You had Tebow, Meyer, Spikes. And the rest of the cast, a few other guys, Major Wright, um, Ahmad Black, Tate Casey, to name a few. They covered a lot of ground. But I'll say this, Will. We just wrote that. I was just holding this up here for the show here. We, we, we wrote a magazine from scratch this year, right? We wrote a magazine from scratch. When you tell a story from scratch, you have to narrow it down. It's difficult. It's more difficult than you think just to parse it down and tell a part of a story. I think these teams were so interesting that even though there were significant pieces left out, which we can get into, uh, I, I I do think that they picked the lane and they stayed in the lane. They stayed in some particular lanes on that. But my last thought here is I, I also really enjoyed uh, Tim Tebow's uh, Jim Caviezel 
whisper impression throughout most of the story tell. I love Tim Tebow. That's about as deep as I'll go to criticize Tim Tebow ever. But uh, the dude, Tim, you're on TV every week, man. We know what you sound like. I the whisper, like I I don't know. I thought the whisper thing was cracking me up the whole time. Like we know how you typically sound. We know what your voice sounds like. I'm not sure why he was whispering the whole time. So like I said, did this cover every angle of of the story? Absolutely not. But it did a great job of getting the participants in the storytelling, their perspective, and bringing the moment to life. So I I think that I was personally reminded of how much on the edge those games were in some of those seasons. And they didn't even go all the way into those stories. They talked about the timeouts against Arkansas in that 2006 SEC championship and then the punt. But, you know, Wandy Pierre-Louis jumps on a loose ball in the end zone. Well, they they didn't. They couldn't go into everything. I get it. There's a limited amount of time, and they, they still had four pieces. But overall, that that's my high-level impression of things I liked from uh, the documentary. What did you like about it? Yeah, man, I think the most – the thing I enjoyed the most was the Brandon Seiler, like you already mentioned. I think that was stuff I didn't know, right? Like I had Wait, never You didn't heard... know about his parents? <laughs> well, the, the fact that he wound up like laughing his butt off at urban meyer go those are the craziest damn parents i've ever seen <laughs> like you go be crazy that's fine i understand like but i mean beyond that i don't know like we never got to know brandon styler during his time there like you knew of him as a football player but you didn't right. know of him as a personality and um, by the time you got to the 2007 and 2008 seasons when Siler had left, well, now these were people we were all familiar with. And I think um, this this was an awesome infomercial for the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. Like any any recruit who watches this will be like, that's cool. I'll give them another look. Anybody who wants to know about the history. I mean, look, 2005 was 18 years ago, right? So the kids who are being recruited nowadays know nothing about the Urban Meyer era. They know of him as a weirdo who kicked a kicker at, at – uh, at Jacksonville and got fired. They don't know him as the head. If nothing else, they maybe remember him as the head coach at Ohio state who, who got pushed out after, after scandals there. So um, I, I think, I think this was a good reminder of what Florida could be. Um, and so look from the standpoint of the university comes off looking great in, in the documentary. I think Brandon Seiler is the main winner. Like you mentioned, I think Tebow's, Tebow's whisper was a little bit weird, but that's all right. And uh, and I thought it was really interesting to see this the evolution of Brandon Spikes, right? That he was he was very self aware that he came came in there and was lazy and just wanted to play football, and that the difference between 2007 and 2008 for Brandon Spikes was that even though he hated lifting weights, he got in the weight room and was the leader for that team. And you think about that defense and how porous they were against Michigan in the bowl game in 2007. Right. And then in 2008, how good they were to have to shut down that Oklahoma offense to, to finish off the year. I think that, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it was an interesting ride to go relive it and all that sort of stuff. So um, there's a lot of stuff that was missing. I, I think there, there's a lot of criticisms you can make about the documentary. I'm sure we will do that. Um, just, and some of it I think is personal taste and some of it I think is, is, is more, you know, thoughts on what a documentary is supposed to be, but in terms of like, am I ready for the season after watching that documentary? Heck yeah, I'm ready for the season. Well, like, let's I, had, get the ball off. I had goosebumps reliving some of these moments. I was at a significant portion of these games. Like I, even the – I was at the Auburn loss in, in 06. I was at the LSU – maybe I was a jinx on the road. I don't know. I was at the LSU game in 07 where Tebow's dialing the phone in the end zone. I, 
I got to see a lot of this live. It was awesome. I, I really enjoyed my time in college there, uh, getting to relive this stuff here. But what was one moment that you went back to? For me, it was the 06 Tennessee game. I do remember that being a dogfight, but I don't, I didn't quite remember just how close it was. I, I like, I remember there being, it went down to the wire in the fourth quarter, but that fourth and one with Tebow, you know, that crossing route crossing pattern there to Dallas Baker to get in the end zone, the one point win. It, I mean, those Tennessee games, for those of you who are younger and don't remember how good Florida and Tennessee was throughout the 90s into the early 2000s, you got to keep in mind, Tennessee, we were having some issues with them. We we were we were dominating them throughout the 90s, but that little early 2000s blip was Zook. They had the Hail Mary before halftime on one of those games in, in the swamp, and they came in after the, the 9-11 game that got bumped back to the end of the year, and they ruined a, a national championship. Was it Spurrier's last game in the swamp, actually, where they end up coming in there and uh, stealing the SEC East out from under us and in a potential BCS championship bid? That was pretty rough. So we had a couple of games that weren't awesome throughout that stretch. And so that was Florida really reestablishing itself, its 90s dominance in the Tennessee rivalry, which we've enjoyed, you know, for the better part of the last 15 plus years here, Will. But that 06 Tennessee game really stood out to me on the road in Rocky Top, especially with Tebow being so green still. So what, what game really stood out to you that you didn't remember as well as you thought you did? I mean, I, I would say the Arkansas game is the one where I I conflate the punt to that Pierre Louis, the muffed punt that Pierre Louis recovers mm-hmm. to the fake punt. Mm-hmm. Right. And I forget that Harvin then just put on the afterburners after that fake punt and converted that into, you know, converted that drive. Cause that's the thing is they were still like their own 30 after the fake punt. So I, I had remembered, I, like, I realized that Urban Meyer had taken a risk. I realized that they had recovered a, a muffed punt, but I didn't like for some reason I didn't remember those as separate events. So it was kind of interesting to go back. Like you mentioned, they didn't even show the the muffed the muffed punt that, that Pierre Louis recovered, but they showed right. the fake punt in the process of that and that sort of stuff. Um, and I, I also didn't remember Arkansas being that competitive in that game, right? Like I mean, Arkansas came out in the second half and hit them in the mouth and and took a lead, right. and then Florida had to go back the other direction and 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 take it back, and they were able to do that. So that was something I hadn't necessarily remembered. That's how it was that season, though. There was a lot of close games that season where they just kind of kept getting by. And that's that's why they talk about the disrespect going into the Ohio State game. Ohio State was a juggernaut that year in offense. They were putting up crazy numbers on offense. Troy Smith was the Heisman winner. And for that 06 team to go into that national championship team game and not just pull the upset, but dominate really both national title games, Will, the 06 title and the 08 title game, those offenses, if you go back and watch the 08 Oklahoma Sooners offense, that they were scoring over 60 in a lot of games. They were insane. Sam Bradford won the Heisman that year. Troy Smith wins the Heisman that year too. And they just shut down both of those killer offenses in such huge moments. And uh, really you got to appreciate, you got to appreciate what you lived through in those times. Well, those were some great times and really brought back, it brought back great memories for people that are old enough like us to remember it. But for the younger generation, I'm not sure how much they really appreciate. They see those numbers on the wall, those 06, 08. I'm not sure how much they really appreciated how, like, if that, uh, of how good Florida was during that stretch. 
Yeah, I mean, look, my my uh, uh, we had a weird situation where my my father was living in Gainesville, my mom was living in Fort Myers, as my sister finished up high school, um, and so one of the things that I would do is go down to Gainesville to visit, just to like hang out with my pops, right? And all of a sudden, now we're watching the games and we've got something to do, and these games are going on. So like, I associate these seasons with going to visit my dad and and hanging out and that's really when we started going to games and now we go to at least one game every year where it's me my dad my brother and, and maybe some other people so you know the auburn game where they have the field goal in in uh what was that 2007 mm-hmm. um where where auburn kicks a, a walk-off field goal there at the swamp. that was one that i was at too so mm-hmm. you know th- there's there's always been like you've got those memories where you were actually at the game and it's cool to sort of relive those the whole way through. So, you know, for, for kids who haven't experienced that yet, you know, that is the reason to be patient. That is the reason when you get a six and seven season to say, I'm not jumping ship. Like I'm going to stay through this and see it all the way through because of how special it is when finally you get one of these big time seasons. We, you know, to be honest, we saw that with Georgia a couple of years ago. I have, I have one friend who's a, who's a, who's a Georgia fan. I had to text him congrats afterwards and then like throw up emojis. But um, you know, <laughs> that dude was like walking on, on cloud nine for like a week and a half. And, and, you know, the reason is because of the drought since 1980, and I guarantee you now you're going to see a lot of people at Georgia who are who like complain when they when they struggle this year in a few games. And it's going to be a lot like that 09 season that, that they talked about in the documentary. So, um, you know, they're sort of on the back end, hopefully, of 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 their little uh, of their little jaunt here. And hopefully Florida's is going to be looking up with Napier. But it, it just makes me appreciate those moments. And, you know, one thing that they absolutely didn't have time to address, but is critical really to me to understanding that time frame is that the basketball team was winning national championships. That that wasn't even mentioned. And and so you're, so you're sitting there like an experience as a Florida fan within that time frame was so freaking amazing. Right. And so it wasn't just, you know, like this would be like, like think about if Georgia won a national title in basketball right right now, you'd just be sitting there going, God, I hate Georgia. Like they win everything. And all my friends, I was at Virginia tech um, for the, for the 08 title. Actually, I think for the 06 title as well. Um, I'm at Virginia Tech at that point. All my friends at Tech are just like, shut up. Like, we don't want to hear about it. Like, every time you turn around, Florida's beating UCLA or Ohio State in the national championship. Oh, Florida's beating Ohio State for football in the national championship. And it was just that way the 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 whole way through. And so um, it was a special time. And that was what this brought back. This brought back that special time aspect of things where you start thinking about where was I? What was I doing? What, you know, where was I in my life right. and those sorts of things. And so from from the standpoint of a Florida fan, I think this was a really successful documentary, especially somebody who lived through it Um, from the standpoint of a um, of the Florida program. I think this is an awesome ad for the university in terms of in terms of what you can what you really get if you bring Florida back to prominence. So in in those two cases, I think the documentary did a really good job. It it also made me remember how much I really love UCLA because of what UCLA contributed to our national championship runs during that era in basketball. We just smoked them every time we played them. And then they did us the favor of beating USC in that 2006, that same day they're playing USC in that, uh, that we were playing the SEC championship game in 06 and they pulled a crazy, I think it was Maurice Jones drew. They pulled the upset. And I remember flipping back and forth on, on that at halftime going, Oh, they're going to do it. We got a shot. We got a shot. So UCLA, man, shout out to UCLA. Uh, but Will, obviously, you know, it's 2023. There's going to be criticism everywhere all the time about everything. But 
I did want to start off with the good because overall, I I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed the documentary. I thought they did. I, I thought it was a fun thing that kept the focus on football. I really enjoyed the storytelling. Uh, there there were a lot of questions about missing characters who are who are definitely compelling aspects of these stories um i'm not sure if chris leak was just an inconvenient dude that stood in the way of tebow's greatness uh, like that's kind of the way he was portrayed in the story a little bit uh not so much the starter for the national championship team that really had a good attitude you know nowadays chris leak comes in he might be a dude on the transfer portal market in two seconds right like but he stuck it out through a tough time at florida that he was something that they didn't address at all was yeah. the amount of sacrifice that chris leak had to make in order to to step aside i mean they, they did mention that when they would bring tebow out and bring leak in that some of the fans would boo and i remember him having to deal with that and the questions yeah, that came fun. up all the time and you got guys like colin cowherd wondering wondering out loud should tebow be getting more run and all that sort of stuff and the fan base obviously loving tebow and for great reason right tebow was a was a major contributor to that team and was sort of a signal that urban meyer was here and that he, and that you know there was a new sheriff in town At the, so the amount of sacrifice the amount of pressure on a guy like chris leak and they didn't address that at all and i think um you know there are some off field things for leak since since he's left florida that maybe make that a little bit difficult to do for something like this but um just to ask guys like tebow like what was it like in the quarterback room with the switching in and out to ask urban meyer did you worry about the fact that you were bringing in tebow and was it going to disrupt what chris leak was doing how did you manage that how did you break it to them like what were their responses was he mad was he just like okay whatever you gotta do coach like you know you've got two of the three principles in that entire thing right you got meyer and tebow that you can interview for it i'm not sure why they never addressed it because i just look at that and go like Chris Leak was a major part of and what he, the team Will, was able to accomplish. The guy started from his freshman year. He had a lengthy career. That doesn't happen very often in the history of Florida football. So he definitely well, has a significant place. Chris Leak has a significant place in the story of the history of Florida football. And I know Tim Tebow's Tim Tebow, but it shouldn't take away from Chris Leak's story. I think he's got an awesome story. He was very much a part of that transition that helped springboard. You hear these new coaches talk all the time, be a part of the change, be a part of the change. Chris Leak really embraced that. The system did not fit him perfectly, and yet he found a way to be enough of a ball player to get it done and lead the, you know, help lead the Gators to obviously great players all around him. But that's the University of Florida. You're always going to have the great players there. He got it done. And he's well, a national championship quarterback. Well, it was the most egregious miss in the entire documentary. They spent a lot of time talking about Spurrier and Urban Meyer mm -hmm. in the cock block game. What they didn't mention was the two major runs that Chris Leak made in that game to keep drives alive that allowed yeah. Florida to take the lead before Jarvis Moss made those blocks. And you think about like narrative storytelling and those sorts of things. Like the story was that Tebow was the perfect quarterback for the system and Leak was a square peg in a round hole. And then when it really came to like the critical game, when they needed a play from Chris Leak, he didn't make the plays with his arm. He made the plays with his legs, scrambled twice twice to keep drives alive that kept Florida in the national championship race. So again, this guy who's a square peg in a round hole is doing the square peg things 
or doing the round hole things, right? He's forcing himself into the system to make it work. Tebow isn't the guy who had, I think it was like a 13 or 14 yard run for a first down on their game winning touchdown drive that leak wound up, wound up doing. I want to even say it was a designed run. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look, but leak made major plays with his legs in that game. And so just from a storytelling perspective, I look at it and go, what were you thinking when he ran off and did that? When he set that up, what was the emotion that Leak had had set up this game winning the, the game winning drive? I mean, look, the block from Jarvis Moss, all that sort of stuff. They didn't even get into the blocked extra point that kept it seventeen right. to sixteen as opposed to seventeen to seventeen, right? So again, I get it. It's three hours. You're trying to go over a four year period, but I, I also that to me is one of the main weaknesses in the documentary is I feel like there was a lot of stuff in there that they treated with a surface because they were going over four years. Well, and I think there would have been an opportunity to focus in more. He he was, he was a guy that was a big part of those first couple of years with urban. And he, he was also a guy you felt really good for when they got it done in 2006. And I always remember the picture of him holding the trophy up. And uh, it, again, Tebow was the backup to leak when he first came in and Tebow was a great role player, absolutely made a difference in 2006, but leak was that starter. He was that starter and they didn't really play up uh, his role much at all. Another major miss in my opinion, Percy Harvin. Did I even hear his name until like, maybe they're like, Oh yeah. By the way, Percy's injured for the Alabama game. I'm like the whole time. I'm like, where's Percy? Where's Percy? Where's Percy? I, I keep asking. Where's Percy? I know they talked about him a little bit. I'd be a little facetious here, Will, but you know, nah, I, I was texted you after the third episode, going, "Have you gotten here yet? Like, did Harvin exist? Because he that, was the best player on all the those 06, teams, 07, and 018. Right, right. <laughs> the best player, and, and like love Tebow. Tebow's a legend at this school. Harvin is still probably the most talented player I've seen in a Gator jersey. That guy. It was a different level of football. Player. It's not a coincidence that they struggled to move the ball much more in 2009 when Percy Harvin wasn't on the team. Um, you know, I, I think if Percy Harvin had stayed and there's no reason he was going to stay, but I think if he'd have stayed in 09, Florida probably beats Alabama or at least plays much more competitively in that SEC championship game. Um, you know, the fact that he was missing in the SEC championship game, that the the game I think wound up what, like 31-21, something like that. But um, you know, it was a slog the whole way through, and Tebow had to make some plays, but they did not have the explosiveness. And you just again the Arkansas game when he was in that one, they get the fake punt and all of a sudden off he goes. Right. And and the fact that that guy, I mean, his freshman year, I think he had 35 catches and 41 rushes, and they would put him in the backfield, just hand him the ball, and he'd run like a like counter a and off he'd go. It was like yeah. the Wildcat era, right? Right. They would just go wildcat with Percy and he'd just take he, it off for 30 yards. He was he was the best player on those teams. The fact that one, he wasn't interviewed was was staggering, but maybe he yeah. just didn't agree to it. But the second part is, you know, the fact that they didn't go get those guys' opinions of what of what Harvin brought to the team, I think was something that I'm just like, you can't tell this story without Percy Harvin. And they tried to, especially for the first three episodes, and and uh, I think they missed out big time by not doing it. And, and we could go on. We could name player countless players here, but uh, significant ones: Pouncey Brothers, Reggie Nelson, Cam Newton. For a minute, it's an interesting story. Uh, Riley Cooper, Lewis Murphy. I mean, you could you could probably go and name a lot of a lot of different players there. Well, but uh, and even wow. some of the guys that were just great along that defensive front. There were a lot of great players across the board for those Gator teams that you could have talked about, and it really kept the focus. But again, 
I do empathize with the fact that it's a four-part docuseries. You have to cover a ton of ground. And actually, the uh, director, Kathleen, Catherine English, she was interviewed on on Feinbaum uh, recently. So uh, if anybody wants to check that out, it's on the uh, it's on his Apple podcast feed, Catherine English, talking about Swamp Kings here. She says, uh, first, she is British, and she says, I, I heard the, uh, I first heard of this story two years ago is how she opened up the interview. I first heard of this story two years ago. I'll admit, at one point, she also says, I'll admit, I don't know much about American football, if anything, when I heard about it. But she did talk about how interesting the story was once she started diving into it. She's been directing films for 20 years, so a ton of experience in how to do so, how to tell a story. I'm not trying to be disparaging at all when I bring that up. And it is so much. It's like if I told you to go through and read uh, all about the 1965 through 68, the Steve Spurrier years, and tell me the perfect story about that, you might not. You might miss a key, few key points in there too. And if you got Tebow, you got Spikes, you got Meyer, I can understand maybe parsing it down and, and drilling it down and just telling those parts of the story. But I also think it's credit to these teams with how interesting this group was from top to bottom that you could sit there and tell a four part series. Will and we look at it as Gator fans go plenty of meat left on that boat. Still, you can still tell you could do another four part series on these teams. That's how interesting they were. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it was clear that, you know, I saw the same thing, but I saw an interview on outkick where she said, I'm not somebody immersed in the world of American football. That was pretty clear, right? That the subjects of the documentary drove the topics, not the football games mm-hmm. right? like one of the things i thought they didn't spend any time on that they really should have were the timeouts at the end of the georgia game like i want to know what urban meyer's thinking while he's calling those timeouts and they didn't even address it now they, they address spikes coming the in spikes and tattoo and no yeah. sean marino yeah. right but but the thing is is like then you're left if you didn't know anything about this program you didn't know anything about those teams you leave thinking florida played a clean, hard game, and they they showed great sportsmanship all the way through, even though they whipped them. And you know they hate Georgia, but they went out and showed it on the field. Not that Urban Meyer is a vindictive sob who called tight, <laughs> who called timeouts at the end to stick it to the Bulldogs at the end. But that, to me, again, it, that wasn't even enough. We should have been thrown it deep. Uh, Spurrier well, was thrown it deep. Absolutely, but the, but this <laughs> so, see that's the thing is that this turned into a. Um, a human interest documentary on Tebow and Spikes and in, and Siler and very much in particular Urban Meyer. Yeah. And so if you're going to make it that, then you have to have the the vindictive streak that Meyer has come out. And, and there were a few places where they brought that in where he talked about, you know, I treat my stars like stars and my shit like shit. And if you want to be treated like a star, you better start playing like one. Like, but but that attitude and, and the interesting thing for me is I always think about this. I read a, I read an autobiography or not an autobiography, a, uh, a biography on the Patriots by Seth Wickersham um, on Brady and Belichick. And one of the takeaways I had from that was I left that book going, was it worth it? Like they don't have any close friends that, or at least Belichick doesn't have any close friends. He's burned a bunch of close relationships because of football. Um, you know, he just seems like a miserable dude who's, Everything is is focused on football. And look, he gets all sorts of adulation from people who don't care about him, but he doesn't. It doesn't feel like he gets a lot of adulation from people who do care about him. And the question I keep asking is, was it worth it? So one of the things I would have liked to have seen is Shelly Meyer come in and ask 
her about Urban Meyer popping Ambien to go to sleep, her worries as as his weight was dropping, you know, her interaction with the players and and the disciplinary struggles that they got into a little bit, you know, what was her opinion when it came to came to Urban and what he was doing with the different players and and how did they got into the story of Avery Atkins and his and his drug overdose after he was dismissed from the team little bit of a misleading story there in terms of in terms of Atkins, but they got into it. And what I want to know, what I wanted to know is how did that impact Meyer and the people around him, not just Meyer's opinion on Atkins. So to to me it was they threw a lot of different topics in this thing. And there were some spaces where I felt like they could have said, look, we're trying to tell a story about Urban like to me the first episode was a story about Brandon Seiler. And that first episode is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then two, three, and four deviated from that. They had like three was supposed to be the disciplinary thing where they talked about it being Gaines Vegas and, and, you know, the university of Florida controlling that space. And so, you know, you're not going to arrest players and things like that. But to me, if you're going to do that, that is an urban Meyer episode. So you make that the Meyer episode and then you have a Tebow episode, and then you have a spikes episode and that's fine. It didn't feel like to me, they sort of separated it that way. I thought there was an opportunity to do that and, and they didn't do that. And, you know, obviously people are going to criticize and we have to bring up that, you know, both Tony, Tony Joyner and Aaron Hernandez are convicted murderers. And both of them um, were, were on these teams. Joyner was on the 06 team. And then, uh, and then Hernandez was on the 08 team. You start talking about disciplinary problems, how Urban Meyer specifically said, you know, they weren't going to abandon any kids after the after the stuff with Avery Atkins. Like, again, I don't think you have to get into that to tell this story. But I think once you go to the disciplinary place, you kind of have to tell bits and pieces of that story because I I look at it if it's relevant to the time. And this was what one of my concerns going in. If it's relevant to the time in question, bring it up. But I thought that it, it was not something that it, like again Aaron, what Aaron Hernandez eventually did how did that really have what did that have to do with him playing for Urban Meyer well well but so, it had a ton no 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 so if my kid who I'm raising right now ends up in prison for armed robbery one of the things I'm going to do is look back at the disciplinary track that I took that's with him you're a kid though you're not that's not a kid what about well, a kid Urban Meyer your, specifically you, you coach a 10 year old team what if a kid who's 10 years old does something stupid on prom night eight years from now is that on you well that, so look urban meyer specifically it's a little silly how we talk about these no things no no no, 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 no. Like i don't think it is i don't think it is massive at all. Urban... influence over these guys where no. some of them go okay coach whatever like meyer made it a point in the documentary if meyer doesn't say what he says about atkins which is basically that i resolved right then and there that we were never going to abandon a kid it meant that there was never any we're going to kick somebody off the team for disciplinary reasons as as a threat for anything. And I'm not saying that Hernandez and Joyner would have wound up perfect in that case. I have no idea. Perhaps he had no impact. But I wondered it. I sat there and I said, did these guys who essentially had their problems when they did things out in Gainesville and their problems went away because they specifically talked about problems just going away, that there right. were fixers who would come in up. and solve their right. problems. Yep. They brought that up and then they just went up oh, now back to the football. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like I like the, the criticism isn't that they didn't bring it up. The criticism is you brought up the first part and you didn't bring up the second. And I would have just preferred they either completely ignore the 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 subject completely and make it a football documentary or 
you have the entire, you tell the entire story because they only told half the story. It felt like an incomplete story. And then that took away from all the other things they could have shown on the football field, right? You, you know, you could have shown leaks runs. You could have shown more about the leak Tebow relationship. You could have shown urban's timeouts versus, versus Georgia. You could have shown the fact that he was dominating the team out West and that it was frustrating for Seminoles fans that he was just dumb and that they were beating Miami as well. Like there were opportunities to tell a football story that were missed because they decided to get into the disciplinary stuff. And then the other thing is they use the disciplinary stuff to sell the, sell the, to, to sell, to sell the documentary, right? Like all the, all that you saw were clips about, Oh yeah, it was Gaines Vegas. Oh, it was crazy. All that yeah. sort of stuff. Poor, and poor then they Brandon never... James is the highlight for uh buying a little lead uh, there. Yeah. Poor, he's the highlight of the criminal cases there. Uh, so, I mean, again, I, I, I don't mind them ignoring it. I don't mind them getting in depth with it. What I minded was that they tried to like split the baby and I just don't think it worked. So I think you spent a half hour doing something that was, was non value add and you could have put a half hour of football in there. If you're going to make it a football doc and you're going to, and, and look from everything that we've heard from the director, Catherine English and from other people is that these interviews weren't going to happen. If they, if they made it all about Hernandez and Joyner and discipline and stuff like that. Right. So just ignore it. Like, just say, look, this is part of the story. You can get that story other places. This is about the personalities and the people on the field and Florida and what they did. And I think it's just as interesting, except I think it's maybe even more more in depth. And and I will say this. I don't know if there's any way to talk about this that you're not going to divide the room in some way. I I, I think you bring that up. You you dive into that. Some people could completely disagree with what I'm saying. I, I look at it this way. I, you know, Urban Meyer... I'm not even sure. Does he know every name on the roster? Does he know the guy, every, every single name on the roster that he coaches? You would think, but you hear stories about college coaches, right? They don't, they don't know every single, they don't know every single guy walking around the hallway in, in some programs, guys. And it's a big program at Florida. And it's sitting there like to pretend like he's got this outsized influence. I mean, Brandon Spikes, they were talking about Gaines Vegas, right? All the parties see that. Was it, was it Silent or, or, or Spikes? Hey, you living right? You living right? That's about the extent of it right there. That Spike story. Hey, Spikes, you living right? And he's like, no, I'm not living right. I'm a college kid. I'm not living right at all. And so we we talk about this, but it's this old school mentality from like the college All-American student athletes. Like we didn't hear stories about anybody's studies or student athletes. That's like kind of like an old thing that's attached to college sports a little bit. And it's sad. It's sad a little bit that we're, we, but it's just I don't know. I call I call BS on that stuff, and I, I do think that I'm not trying to diminish anything. Obviously, what happened with Hernandez is extremely serious, but you could tie it a lot more to what happened. We've watched those documentaries, right? We've read those articles. We've seen a lot about Aaron Hernandez. Yeah. You tie it back to his childhood. You tr- tie it back to a lot of things about. There's a lot of things that goes into a person's psyche that builds into that, and like, hey, did, did maybe you you could say there's a missed thing here or there at the University of Florida. I, I, sure. Well, sure, and but, I, again, I don't even know that you need to go that far. I don't, think it's, other I don't than, think it's a big part of the story if you're telling the story of those teams, though. That's that's well, what I'm saying. On well, that. and and in some ways, I agree with that. Except you're telling the story. It became a story about Urban Meyer over the course of the four episodes, and, and that was a criticism and, I heard online. 
you and, think and that it, it was trying to rehab his image? Absolutely like, it was. Yeah. Because otherwise you ask the question after he goes through and says, we were never going to, we were never going to abandon a kid. The next logical question is, do you think that had anything to do with the things that have followed some of your players as they've left? Right. And you don't even have to say Hernandez and Joyner. You just have to say, do you think looking back, do you think that was the appropriate policy considering what's happened in the future? Because you're looking in the past saying, I'm going to adjust my approach in the future because of what just happened. But in making that adjustment, did that affect anything in the future? That question would have completely closed the loop for me and I would have been okay with it. But when you decided to shy away from it, it became clear that it was it was urban Meyer's attempt to explain why discipline ran wild in the program. And the problem is, is that we've got anybody who knows football a little bit and has, and has followed Ohio state at all as well, saw some of those things follow him when he went to Columbus as well. So yes, it was a rehab. It was an image rehab thing. I saw plenty of people saying, it's time to get him, you know, it's time to get him in the, the, you know, get him in the Florida hall of fame or whatever. Like basically it's time to bring him back and forgive him for anything that he did over the, over the time, course of the time he was there in Gainesville. And maybe, I think that's a, that's a good discussion to have. I just don't think this is a complete discussion when you're really talking about why people have mixed feelings about urban Meyer. And uh, you know, again, I don't, I understand why it was shied away from, but if you're going to shy away from it, then like I didn't learn anything from the section that talked about, you know, things going nuts in, in Gainesville that I didn't expect. Like I expect like I expect a couple of guys, you know, hell, Steve Spurrier used to talk about wanting to play Georgia early because he knew they were going to have a couple of guys out. Right. Like that probably would have been a joke for these teams as well. But I mean, is that really outside of the norm? No, the things that were outside of the norm was how how much it was how much it proliferated and sort of the approach to the discipline. I think that was the first time a lot of people had heard about attorneys who were fixers and those sorts of things. And and if you're going to go through that, you got to tell the whole story. That's my only thing is tell the whole story or don't tell it because there was enough football stuff that was missed that it feel to me there were areas that felt incomplete in in multiple spaces and just uh, um, yeah. So what, another fascinating point. I, I remember, I forget where I saw this, but it was a save. I believe it was a Saban speech somewhere. I forget where he's given it, but he was talking about one of his points was high achievers don't get along with mediocre people and mediocre people don't tend to get along with high achievers. Y'all, Urban Meyer, you can have any opinion you want of this guy. This guy is a high achiever. This guy is a an absolute freak about winning. And I remember when the Jags hired him, I might be the only Jags fan that doesn't have any Harper, any ill will toward Urban Meyer because, uh, you know, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, coached the Buckeyes, coached the Gators, like went to Florida while I was there. I, I love Urban Meyer, man. I'm a big Urban Meyer fan, big Urban Meyer fan. But the dedication to winning is almost unmatched with this guy to an unhealthy degree. And I thought some of that was interesting. They got into – they barely touched the surface – of it, I know he talked about the ambient that he talked a little bit about that, but when you're building a program to get to that level and you see what Saban has done in the proof of concept of a level of sustainability that can occur with that, where Meyer went and he can burn real hot and fizzle, burn real hot and fizzle at Ohio State, they're the same, almost the exact same pattern at Ohio State, almost is very similar. What do you think we can learn from that? 
going forward. Because even Spurrier, why did Spurrier leave for the NFL? One of the reasons was he was just, hey, guys, what, 10 wins isn't good for you anymore? <laughs> like, was that part of the reason that he was out there saying that? So it's like a program like Florida that's just going to demand and demand and demand. And you got here, like, respected writers like Stuart Mandel of the Athletics out there predicting Billy Napier is going to get fired this season. Which come on, oh, those Florida boosters are going to come up with that thirty-two million dollar buyout. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, but would have rather spend it on Rashada. (laughs) Right, (laughs) we spent it there. We would have to fire you, dude. But if if you're looking at it from like a standpoint of sustainability, what can we learn from the Urban Meyer era coming forward? And I feel like Billy Napier really brings the aspect of statement that he brings is he just that process oriented it strikes me as a more sustainable model i'm hoping it has that level of success there's almost to reach the meyer level of success that's really hard going to be really hard to do but if he does hit if billy neighbor does hit it just feels like it's a more sustainable model overall and what can what lessons would you take from that urban meyer story Well, I mean, not just lessons for the football program, but I think lessons for life, which is that you need to – that if you look at the guys who've been long-term successful in college football, guys like Bobby Bowden, guys like Tom Osborne, um, guys like Joe Paterno, um, those guys I think loved the process more than they loved the winning. Now, they still wanted to win, but they loved the process. So Nick Saban loves the process, right? Like he quoted, you know, he's, he's trademarked that the process, but that, but what that really means is he's much more research and development oriented. And I come from an R and D world. Um, I'm a scientist. You also live he, in Philadelphia and you're just giving the process all the credit to Saban. Well, something like that. But I like the Sixers too much. Well, no, not at all. But, <laughs> but, 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 My point is, is that they love the process and the result is wins and losses. And if you do the process right, the the result is going to be a lot of wins. Mm -hmm. Urban Meyer loved the winning, which meant that he did the process, right? Like he, he was texting guys in a locked room after winning the 08 championship, texting recruits because he hated losing so much and loved winning so much he was willing to do that stuff on the, on the backside right and that to me i think is 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 the thing and when you say napier is more sustainable what you're really saying is he's not psychotic and and you know or at least he he's psychotic about the right things right that that you're incredibly cognizant of the way you do something in march is going to reflect what you see on the field in August and September and October, and that you're not just going to be able to adjust stuff in October if you didn't do the right things in March and April and May. And look, Urban Meyer knew that, but I almost feel like Meyer in some ways, like the whole spikes, the whole spikes arc where he comes in, he's like, I just want to play football, man. I just want to play football. We're not trading for Iraq here. (laughs) (laughs) And then eventually he goes, I know I hate this, but I'm going to do it because it's necessary to win. Mm -hmm. That is the Urban Meyer attitude, right? Where I hate this, but I'm going to do it to win. Whereas the Siler attitude was, kill me, coach. I love this stuff. Like, you put me in the weight room and I am going to be a monster. And Tebow was like that too, right? He's sitting there mm-hmm. next to Siler going in there and saying, if he does one more curl, I'm going to do two. If he does one more squat, I'm going to do two. Um, and, and sort of the idea that, you know, you love the pain and you love the prep and you love the process versus loving the result. Now you love the result too, 
but you recognize that your love of the process, you hear this all the time for professional athletes. It's not that they don't want to play on game day anymore. It's that they don't want to put in the work that's necessary in order to make sure they're ready for game day. Like that's when, that's when guys tend to know that they retire. And that's why Brady lasted till he was 45 years old because he loved that prep work and was willing to do it. And dude hasn't had a strawberry in like two decades. And you know, that sort of process, like I, I guarantee you Brady is somebody who loves, loves the process of preparing as opposed to just loving the result on game day. And Meyer, I mean, hell the stories during there where he's like about to throw up on the sidelines when something happens like Siler after the, after, after the kickoff return so from in the Ohio state game by yeah. Ted Ginn, like Siler has to go in and go, dude, calm down. Like pick what the hell's headphones. wrong with you? Like pick up your headphones. Like he's like, he's like, Herb was over there freaking out. I had to go calm him down. <laughs> like if you're going to calm down your head coach after the first play of the game, granted a bad play, but if you're going to calm him down, like to me, <laughs> that just sort of represents, represents something that's unhealthy to start with. And look, a high achiever. Absolutely. But, and, and this is where I go to what I said earlier about, is it worth it? Right. That the, there is no doubt that Urban Meyer is an awesome college football coach. The question I have is, is from a relationship perspective and from a, from a quality of life perspective and all those sorts of things, like, was it worth it? Right. Like when, 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 when he dies and people get up at his funeral, are they going to say the things that he wants them to say, or are they going to get up there and go, I hated that guy. And I was a better football player because of it, but I despised him. Right. And, and look, I think there's going to be varying opinions across the, across the board on Urban Meyer. But, um, but I, but I think that's sort of the, when you start looking at things through the framework of when I die, if I was sitting in the back, if my soul is like floating above the room and I get to see what people say at my funeral, what do I want them to say? And, you know, those are the questions I wanted asked, right? Like those are the things I wanted to learn about Urban Meyer. I'm not sure that we necessarily got all the way to there. Well, and that's where so coming almost full circle here. I think this ended up being a, a solid. It, it was a solid look at a very specific slice of these teams, and I think you can say, yeah, I wish we went deeper on things, but they did cut. Co- they covered so much ground in in really a relatively, even though it was four episodes. Well, what was the total runtime there? Three hours. Three hours. Saying? Yeah. So it's three hours of runtime. I'll tell you what, as as someone who's tried to learn to develop content himself, you you can go way over real quick. It, it can happen, so it's hard to make those decisions on what to cut and what not to cut. But uh, I I hope uh, you know we certainly didn't cover every aspect of it in our own discussion here. Will we have to? Pick no, in fact, the, the one about. well, the one thing I was about to say is the the thing I found most interesting about the documentary was they are still bitter and angry that they didn't get the 2009 championship like don't you love that a little bit they cared man that 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 team was it that team was invested yeah but you think about a guy a decade later 15 years later or whatever it is getting interviewed about you know two national championships and a heisman trophy and all that stuff you almost you almost feel or i almost felt like tebow would trade every single accolade he had for that 09 championship. And, and that's, it's fascinating to me. And I think is representative of why one, those teams were so good. And those players were so good is that they didn't like the 06 championship. Okay. That's great. Time to win another one. 
right? Like, and losing 07 burns at him. Losing 09 burns at him. And, you know, that's one of the things. Like, Tiger Woods was like that too, right? Like, he, he come in second. Everybody's like, oh, that's great. He's like, second sucks. <laughs> like, those sorts of people. Um, again, I think there's a trade-off when you're that type of person. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Urban Meyer, we've seen a lot of his flaws. And and um, part of that's because he's been the head man in, in, these, in these instances. Um, Tebow is not that different. Like, there's obviously the faith component and those sorts of things. But from a personality perspective, he's not much different. Like, that that fire burns there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, interesting. I know Gator Dave had something up on Twitter the other day wondering what would have happened if Tebow had gone to Alabama. Because then he's playing with Mike Shula. Oh. And Shula probably lasts through the Tebow era. But is Tebow going to fit in that offense? And then Cam Newton comes to Gainesville. And then what happens if Newton plays? Or does Urban not get Newton because he doesn't have the 06 class? Because Harvin kind of came with Tebow. Like they were, you know, in fact, at Spikes did too, right? Spike said he was going to go where Tebow went. I think all those guys went to so no, so right. all those guys going to going to Bama. And then yeah. uh, you know, is Nick Saban spending one more year at Miami? And then all of a sudden, look, there's a job opening games. <laughs> like um, so it's it's you know, again, it's a great just, it's a great what if question because I, I grew up in Jacksonville and he went to Nice High School. And I do remember coming home. I was on winter break from UF and I remember coming home. And my girlfriend at the time was like, so wait, why are we come? Like, I was like, I gotta be, it was like, he was announcing at like four o'clock or something or three o'clock. We gotta be at the TV at three o'clock. We gotta figure this out. And she's like, why do we care? <laughs> so it turns out we're talking about the, the mental health of, of Urban Meyer and Tebow, but you and I both have some, uh, some skeletons in our closet as well. Coming home at four o'clock to see a 17 year old announce where you he's see, going to college. You see this wall? Does this look like <laughs> somebody that's totally mentally healthy? Like my, I'm well, lucky. I'm lucky. My wife gave me a little section of the house to do this. Stuff say the with, Buccaneers man. helmet sort of gives it all away. Yeah, it's really, it's tough, man. I, I, hey, I'm a, I'm a sicko. I watch a lot of Jags football too. And, and how, the Gators haven't been uh, a treat at all times in the last decade they've been a little rough at times too but hey we you do it because you love it and that's what I, i'll tell you this tebow's a guy one of the reasons why i was a little bit a little bit on edge coming into this documentary this team this era has been just trashed in the last decade it urban like spite not not necessarily spice but tebow and tebow there's a lot of reasons why tebow gets trashed and and, and i just I'm tired of it. I, I, they've had everyone's had their moment making fun of everything, trashing everything, and it's good. It's good to see these guys in a good light. It's good to see because that's how it was in the moment. You remember those guys were that those teams were awesome. Those teams were a lot of fun to watch. And going into those games, those were some massive moments, and they came through. And bit it's like everything just went your way for a few years, and every ball bounced your way. Every little thing was working out. You know. Urban blows three timeouts at the beginning of the Arkansas uh, second half there in the SEC championship game. No problem. We figure it out. We figure it out. So it was just – it was a great era that was a lot of fun, and I think I think that's the part the documentary got right. And, um, hey, man, I, again, hopefully this encourages more, uh, more looks into those teams because I think there's definitely room for it. 
Well, it sounds like you and I should make a documentary because, uh, you know, clearly, clearly we need other people to, to critique our stuff because I'm sure we'd, we'd have some foibles as well. So, yeah, I don't want this to come off as I didn't like it. I loved it. I thought yeah. I thought it was a great look. It took me back to to that era. It took me back to time that I was spending with my family, with my dad in particular. And, you know, that's one of the things that college football, I think, does better than anything. Like, you know, NFL football does it a little bit, but there's not quite the connection. And my dad. You know, my dad didn't go to Florida, but he took a job at the University of Florida right at the time that Urban Meyer was taking over. And so all of a sudden we had something in common. And for somebody who didn't necessarily always get along all that well with his pops, um, that was something that brought us together and still keeps us together every every fall. And, and um, you know, that's to me what college football means. So we can talk about the broader societal implications and would have liked to know more about Urban Meyer and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, like seeing these guys who are all a part of my life and a part a big part of it right because you know there is something about strutting around wearing your uf stuff like i'll wear it even when they go six and seven but it's a lot of fun wearing it when you just want a national title right and uh and these guys gave that to us and so Mm -hmm. um you know like i said with the with the basketball stuff that was going on at the exact same time um there was never a better time to be a gator and and in fact my sister got better sat scores than me and had a better grade point average and didn't get in (laughs) <laughs> because the enrollment cool. had gone up so much cool. since since then and uh you know worked out well for her but um but you know that was that it was just an awesome time to be a gator and and if nothing else like you said the 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 sort of Gainesville stock footage of of the beer store and all that sort of stuff and the, and the different areas around campus sort of brought you back to when you were there when you were a student when you were heading in for games that sort of stuff so you know you go back now and everything's changed and there's new new buildings going up left and right and all that sort of stuff and sometimes it feels like those sorts of things are passing you by so this was a great opportunity to go back and look at um you know that moment in time sort of frozen in a space where all of us um you know it was a really special thing to be a gator well, I have no doubt that I am at some point going to watch this entire series again before the Gators kick off next Thursday night against Utah. And uh, maybe a good note to leave to end this, this part of the discussion on would be a quote from Brandon Siler's mother that, hey, you come here to win SEC championships in, in the nationals. You come here to make the NFL and win a national championship. This ain't Utah. This ain't Utah, so that that'd be a good little, good little speech to give. Billy should steal that from Brandon Siler's mom in the locker room. Hey, this Brandon Siler's mom needs to come give the pregame speech yeah. before, the, uh, before the game against Utah. Just get her a few beers in the parking lot, man. That'd be good, dude. That'd be good. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's wrap things up. Hey, before we do, Will, I would like to plug our good friend Gator Dave. Uh, just launched a new website, right? GatorsBreakdown.com. Yep. So he's got the podcast. He's out there. He's he can't miss Gator Dave. He's out. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. So, but his website's up now, and he's actually putting things, writing articles, and uh, doing. Uh, he's got got a whole whole thing cooking up there. So he's always great with promoting our stuff. I want to make sure we give him a shout out on uh, GatorsBreakdown.com. Yeah, he's he's an awesome friend. Obviously, I contribute over there, but uh, you know, it's nice to see him expanding and growing. It's always good to see good people, um, you know, see their see their dreams 
see their dreams grow and that sort of stuff. And I know Dave would love to do this full time. And, and honestly, with the amount of content he puts out, he already kind of does do it full time, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's awesome to see somebody expand and and especially somebody who's a good person. So I'm thrilled for him and yeah, go over there and check out gatorsbreakdown.com for, for all the stuff Gators breakdown related. And, you know, you'll find three videos up that you didn't even know existed yet because uh, you know, he's just putting up unbelievable amounts of content. And there are times where I look at him and just go, how did you already get that up? Like, did you know yeah. that this was happening? He's like, nah, I had to race home on my lunch break and record. No, it's, it. it's <laughs> really impressive. The, the speed at which he goes after. That's not our operation. That's not our operation no, at all. That, but I'm always very impressed with how quick uh, Gator Dave's all over it. So make sure if you're not subscribed to Gators Breakdown, you obviously can catch Will over there too. But uh, please check out uh, his new website and, and obviously Gators Breakdown uh, at a podcast near you. Well, uh, the other thing too, we did put out a little bit of an addition to the magazine, about 10 pages. You had sent it out to people who got the magazine. Any comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's about 10 pages extra. There's a look at Austin Armstrong's defense. There's also a look at freshman wide receivers and how they typically perform. Both very relevant topics to to the Gators this year. It was something that sort of hit the cutting floor when we were putting the original magazine together. But I think you and I both looked at it and said, God, we really kind of want to answer these questions. So as a thank you to the people who bought it, we went ahead and sent it to you directly. Um, if you haven't bought the preseason magazine yet, we don't have any hard copies left, but what we do have is a digital copy. If you buy the digital copy, you'll get the original magazine, and then you'll also get the additional 10 pages when you make that purchase. So if you go over to readandreaction.com, slash mag that's readingreaction.com slash mag you can pick it up there's also going to be a little snippet um in the in the article that you mentioned earlier about toss up for fsu there will be about half the article looking at austin armstrong's defense and you know it'll fade out and it'll say hey it's, you know buy it here so if you want to get a little taste of what it is go go head over to readingreaction.com click on the most recent article there the toss up for florida state and below the florida state article will be a, a little snippet of what we put in the magazine as extra content and it's pretty representative of of what the magazine is right like it, it's we've got offensive breakdowns that have a very similar structure to uh you know to, to what we're seeing in there so uh so anyway uh, um check that out we appreciate everybody supporting us um you know it's a week week and a half till the season starts but uh not too late some of you are going on vacation some of you quite honestly if, if you like the swamp kings documentary sort of got you ready for the season i think this is one of those other things that you're going to read some stuff and go all right yeah i like i am ha like more than anything, sort of bring your expectations in line with what you might see this year. Um, you know, writing it actually made me feel more encouraged about the Florida season. You've been making fun of me, calling me optimistic Will for the past couple of weeks. And part of that is because I've been ripping on our opposition. But I think part of it is, is that, you know, I think there are definitely holes for this team, but I think there are definitely areas that we're going to see some growth. And we tried to highlight those sorts of things in the magazine. So hopefully people enjoy it. And I'm just trying to highlight you, Will. You being optimistic, that's all I'm trying to highlight over here. Come on. You get you hear about it enough when you're not optimistic. So you gotta get you gotta get highlighted a little bit when you are. So I, I'm just trying to just trying to show off your optimistic side to the audience as well. So everybody, this is the last time you have to hear our voice when there's not a game the following week. So this is the last non-game week episode of Stand Up and Holler. We'll see you next week for the Utah preview. I'm so excited that we finally get to do previews, Will, and and uh, it, you don't have to dig as deep for topics in, in the season, Will. It's it's a little bit easier, so that that'll be fun. We're ready to get in the groove. We're ready for football season. If you haven't watched Swamp Kings, be sure to check that out on Netflix. And for Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. See y'all next week, and go Gators.
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.